Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiologist, and I'm a nutritionist, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. And this is Phil Stevens. I run Strength Guild, and as well as a bunch of events coming up. I'm a powerlifter, Highland Games athlete. Uh, I'll compete in about anything they let me. So Yes, you will. <laughs> Except for running. All right. <laughs> nice. This is Dr. Mike T. Nelson, uh, owner of FlexDiet.com. Uh, instructor, faculty member at Rocky Mountain University, and faculty member at the Kerrig Institute. Right on. All right. Well, that's us, everyone. We have a lot of mail, uh, and we have some news coming through, so we're going to do an episode of News and Mail, as we are wont to do, uh, so this doesn't back up on us and we can you know, be as agile as possible just responding to everyone. This first one I actually alluded to last week. Uh, and it's it's mostly for Phil. This is actually from one of my former students. Uh, some of them get turned on to the podcast. As you can imagine, sometimes they'll come by and they'll start asking me like sports nutrition questions or lifting questions. And I'll be like, after a while, maybe a few years ago, the, you know, the dim bulb flickered on with me. I'm like, why don't you just go listen to Iron Radio? Because <laughs> I guarantee we've covered this in the last 10 years, you know. So anyway, um, this is from Cody. Uh, he was talking about he's traveling all over Europe, actually. Uh, it's really kind of interesting what's going on, but uh, I'll, I'll kind of leave that to the wayside. He says, I actually had a question for you. Lately, I have felt my quads are lacking. I work them two to three times a week. Typically, I either do a safety bar squat or, or barbell squat for the compound movement. Uh, I'll do this for five sets of five to eight reps. I never go higher than 315. I'm not quite as strong as I used to be. Uh, then I'll do Smith machine squats for three by 20 reps with 135. I do a second pause at the bottom, one second pause. Then I finish off my quads with lunges or leg extensions. Do you have any recommendations on what I can do to help develop my quads more? I would greatly appreciate any advice. What do you more think? More than that? More than what he's doing, it seems like he's doing a ton, um, mm -hmm. and I, that could be even an issue. Mm -hmm. Maybe he's doing too much and never recovering, um, and he doesn't go over three fifteen. And he's—it's uh, hard to say what he's hitting for reps. I mean, if he—if he's honestly hitting like sets of twenty with three fifteen, then at some point you're probably going to have to go above three fifteen. Well, no, no, he's um, saying the three sets of twenty is with one thirty-five. Oh. I, I think the 315 is for the like the five sets of five kind of thing. Okay. Well, then then I'm going to say at one point, I mean, you're going to have to probably, at some point, that 135 and stuff is going to have to get heavier. I mean, your body's just going to get used to that. And I think we've talked about this on the show before. I mean, if, if reps were the end-all, be-all, then marathon runners would be jacked. At some point, there has to be load. There has to be intensity yeah. um, to elicit more growth. So, I mean, your body's probably just used to that stimulus of you know 135 for 20 and you might have to go 155 you know or something like that it could be something as easy as that and it sounds like if you're doing all that multiple times a week like i said you might need to back off 
um, a good stint of like backing off and doing a little bit of legs once a week for a little while to purposely kind of decondition yourself and get your body not used to that may be the stimulus you need. I mean, take a month and don't do much and then come back and hit some high volume again. You know, do a month or two of <clears throat> a bit higher intensity, lower rep work, get unused to the, the reps and, uh, then come back and hit some sets of 10 and 15 and yeah. 20 and things like that. Cause we'll, we'll do that. I mean, my lifters, when we get done with like a meet, you come back and hit sets of eight or 10 and you'll be wrecked in soreness just because you're used <laughs> to doing ones and threes. So, um, our body's pretty amazing at getting used to what we put it through on a regular basis. So it, it could be as simple as that. You're that just, does almost it's time sound, to change it up. It almost sounds illogical, but there was a pro bodybuilder. It might've been Corey Everson. It, it was a woman and she used to purposely do that. Right. And she yeah. was known for her legs and she would take a, a little while off. Or even just periodize. I mean, if he's doing this two to three times a week, he's got yeah. he's got what I would consider the moderately heavy work, like five sets of five with three fifteen, and then he's also doing three sets of burnouts with twenty reps. Yes. It's like maybe do just do yeah, take some time off, just do some heavy stuff for the next eight or twelve weeks or whatever yep. you know your duration, then do some higher rep or like you know undulate that periodization yep. up and down. Um, I mean, one of the things that you can't ignore either is like frequency is very popular now, but you know, it worked for a lot of people that were looking for size was the whole just one time a week and go in and wreck them <laughs> and, then, yep. and then leave them and let them rest for a whole freaking week Yep, uh, and then come back. That worked. So, That's old school. Yes. Yep. Oh yeah. Yep. I so, did that myself for many years, you know, and I, yeah, I it's, it's probably time for, days. like you said, just a change. You've, you've gotten so used to what you're doing that it's not eliciting a response anymore. Mm -hmm. So yeah, his work ethic is not in question two to three times no. a week, you know, <laughs> to me, five yeah. sets of five, that's plenty of volume right there to follow yeah. that up with three sets of 20. Yes. And Dude. like at some point you just can't add more. So you can't just keep adding more. Uh, so I think the whole deconditioning thing that we talked about is probably a good idea. Hmm. Um, and get unused to that stuff. Somehow so. it resets something. I, I've never seen a paper on that, you know, because it does. Mm -hmm. It seems almost illogical on its surface. Like, why would you get out of shape to get re back to where you are? But for, it's like half a step back, so you could take two steps forward. I think. Yeah, you know? yeah, it, it does seem to work that way. Um, Interesting on his squat form, what form he's using. If his shin is like super vertical, he's almost like a borderline more box squat type thing. Then. Yeah. He may consider changing up his stance a little bit, assuming his knees and structure can handle it and allowing that knee to drift a little bit more forward, which is going to shift more of the load onto the quads. Right, too. anterior, yeah. Yeah, no, that's a good point. We're not seeing what he's calling a squat. And right. Like if I have an athlete that it was literally just for size, then we're going to go as deep as we possibly can in yeah. a safe fashion. <laughs> yeah, so. I'm guessing because he uses the Smith machine for the burnout reps, there is some of that going on. You know, yeah, there'd have that, to be on a Smith machine. You know, yeah. Um, his yeah, his light work is on the Smith machine. So I think Smith's just you know really that's one of the best things about them. I think is that you can get, you can either be on one side of the bar or the other and force you know force the the stress more anterior or posterior or whatever. Yeah. But and <clears throat> I actually know him, so this is a little bit different scenario. He's sort of a a smallish kind of wrestler kind of build, muscular. Mm -hmm. You know, not he's he's not built like um, you know, Jim Wendler. You know, he, yeah. he's, but yeah, he's very strong. Well, I mean, we can't ignore calories. 
<laughs> oh, no, that's right. Let's I not mean, forget the yeah, nutrition. Let's be truthful here. I mean, if you're doing 10,000 set, sets and reps, but you're not putting any fuel in there to build anything, they're not going to grow. Not going to grow. You know, so. Yeah. Okay. Next up, we have one from uh, Rachel. Uh, let's see. Uh, hi, guys. I'm contacting you for some advice on supplements for metabolism. And I think this might stem from last week's uh, episode. Mm-hmm. Um, I... I I have someone asking me what supplements are the most effective for women specifically that have gained weight through menopause. Please let me know uh, what you would recommend. I hope your semester is starting off well, uh, your research is coming along, etc. Um, to me, this is tough, and I'll just offer this. A lot of fat burners, right, that somebody might go buy on the market to get in shape, and I've got to uh, assume – that there's lifting involved in some level. Otherwise, why send us the question? But um, a lot of fat burners are sort of stimulant in nature. So if if a woman is uh, undergoing menopause, uh, by definition, she's midlife. You, you know, typically, I know it happens at different times. You know, 40s and 50s, uh, as far as decades go. But uh, a lot of them are stimulants, and they could actually interact with other meds. So to me, the older you get, the more you rely on <laughs> different meds. Like I, I didn't used to take ibuprofen and caffeinated aspirin like I do now, you know, stuff like that. And, I, of course, that goes times 10 with all different kinds of medications. So you'd have to be careful about the fat burner stuff. The typical approach that's not stimulant-based, um, and let's face it, or maybe she can. Maybe she's a 55-year-old. She says, I'm all about the stimulants. Okay. Yeah. You know, not on any other meds. Okay. Just because they interact. Some of the herbal stimulants interact a lot. But um, I just suggested you focus on something like a gram of protein per pound daily. You know, try to get 30, 35, 40 grams of fiber even every day. Uh, those are things that tend to be non-stimulant approaches, you know, to fat loss and that kind of thing. Um Mike, what do you think? If you have somebody asking, uh, like a, you know, perimenopausal woman asking about supplements for fat loss. Yeah, it's. I agree that I don't think the fat burners are all that useful. A lot of times their stress is pretty high. And I actually just had this discussion with a client yesterday, actually. Oh. And if you, there's some interesting research. I guess the one I would put probably at the top of the list would be uh, melatonin. Um, there's a cool open access review if you just type in the title sleep, melatonin, and menopausal transition. What are the links? Uh, it'll pop up from 2017. And we do know that there's some other data showing that if your sleep is severely impaired, uh, it does shift your fuel to be using more carbohydrates and not fat. We do know that messed up circadian rhythm is related to uh, body composition in uh, more epi studies. Um, so that's what I would look at and see if they can get, you know, sunlight exposure for at least 20 minutes in the morning without, you know, windows or sunglasses. Um, if not just starting at around, you know, one milligram of melatonin as it gets dark, may be beneficial. Mm-hmm. Um, that's probably the direction I would look at first, but yeah, it could be a whole bunch of stuff and obviously work with their physician or functional med doc just to see what's going on too. Yeah. You know, that's, um, when we did our predictions, we probably should have brought up chronobiology as one yeah. of the things that's coming down the pike because, yeah, th- those sorts of circadian rhythms, I've always been a fan of looking at that sort of stuff and, you know, eating different things at different times of day. And it's a good point about the melatonin, right? Because, I mean, I've seen some work. You could be stimulating growth hormone release or you could be doing other things or, like you said, just resetting yourself like from a neuropeptide way, you know, I don't know. 
that that's not a bad idea either. A non that's a non stimulant approach. Yeah, a non stimulant because the last thing I really want to do is add just a whole bunch of stress to their system too, and possibly make everything worse. Yep. Phil, I know you've got a lot of female lifters. Do you have some in the in like the perimenopausal age, like you know mid forties through their fifties and beyond? Oh yeah. Okay. Um, uh, what, what do they do, or do they simply not care about body fat so much, and they just focus on strength? No, they care, but I mean, I think we just mainly take care of it all through food and training. So okay, yeah. Uh, not a lot of supplements going on at my place. I mean, mm-hmm. coffee. Yeah, we, we drink coffee. And other than that, I mean, they just seem to work a little different, and it depends on their goals. So I have, you know, I have some that are in there. You know, 50s, 60s that are competing in powerlifting. Some that are literally there just to be in better shape. So it kind of depends. Uh, yeah. But, yeah, I don't get a little, a lot of the, uh, we don't do a lot of the, the supplement stuff. I have some that go in for hormone replacement and things like that. But uh, right. that's be, being a little a, a little more new. So. Well, yeah, and, you know, honestly, I think we all know that's going to have a bigger impact than a lot of, like, different fat burner type supplements you'd be yeah. popping, pills you'd be popping. I mean, you get your hormones yeah. in order and I, yep. I, I think for middle-aged people, I think that's it, – it's amazing, right, yes. what, what, what can yeah. happen. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Well, thank you, Rachel. It, it's a good question. And like I said, it, there's not a lot of discussion here about the specific lifting goals or anything like that. Um, but, yeah, like you said, Phil, sometimes you just have, you know, a 50-ish-year-old woman, and she just wants to get in shape. And it's not necessarily yeah. about being as strong as possible or something like that. So, yeah. Um, okay. Moving on. We just have a lot of these. RJ uh, says, uh, thank you for the shout out in this week's Iron Radio episode. Uh, This is from uh, just a week or two ago. Um, I just wanted to follow up and also chime in that I would love to hear an episode about mushrooms and mycronutrients. I've also started researching more into the topic myself lately for health as well as for potential nootropic effects. Uh, it would be really great to hear more about the topic. Thanks, RJ. Uh, so I, that's going to prompt me to probably uh, pester Dr. Cordero to come back on a little bit. And, and Mike, if you, you can actually reach out to the supplier guy that you know, that, that it could be really informative. I mean, why not explore it? You know, if it's going to yeah. help your mental functioning as well as health. Um, it's one of those just sort of corner cases that a lot of people don't give a lot of attention, I think. Yeah, there's some for uh, neuro effects on lion's mane. There's some pretty interesting effects. I think some of them have been a little bit kind of overblown because it's becoming more sexy now. But there's some pretty good data on that, and tons of really good data on reishi and some. <coughs> Sounds good. Uh, when we were just discussing fat control in middle-aged people, and Phil, you mentioned coffee and things like that, both for antioxidant effects and. Um, you know, it's just some of the, the boost mental and you know, performance, like motivational boost that you get before you work out. These next two, uh, there's a question here, and then there's a news bit, and they're actually about coffee. And I like coffee, by the way, when, Mike, you were talking about stress and not adding additional stress. Acutely, yes. I mean, coffee is going to raise your epinephrine levels. I mean, I've measured that myself. Um, habituated or not, male or female, you're going to probably get a rise in epinephrine uh, and, you know, the coffee itself has, has pharmacologic effects, obviously. But what's neat about coffee is it doesn't really screw with your carbohydrate metabolism uh, week to week to week in a chronic way like a lot of those harsh stimulants would. 
Um, and Mike and I, we've seen some of that, you know, the original researchers, like the guy in Japan, I can't remember his name now, mm -hmm. but who is really doing a lot of that coffee and diabetes prevention, diabetes treatment kind of thing. Um, but Eli sent us an email and I forwarded it to Phil. He just says, I hope this finds you in good health. Uh, I'm inquiring about contact information regarding the Murica brew. And I think this is funny. I, he heard Phil mention, it, I think, yeah. in an ep mm -hmm. episode of Iron Radio. He says, as a strength coach and athlete, my staff and I uh, go through a lot of coffee. And if we can get our semester bulk supply from a trusted Iron Radio co-host, that would be amazing. Uh, I know this is not your department, but just trying to get in contact right now. Many gains, Eli. So I, I don't think we're alone with the coffee interest. Like I said, it's sort of back to that whole food approach, Phil, that you take, which is, yeah. you know, it, it sounds a little hippy dippy, but sometimes the better approach is the more, you know, the less processed, more whole food approach. And I think with coffee and pre-workout stimulants, that's just really true. So. Yeah. Eli's coffee is in transit to him. Oh, so. is it? <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So. Um, those are Robusta beans that, that you guys use, right? Yes. Like that's a highly caffeinated stuff yeah. um, and not artificially. So I think a lot of people need to realize, you know, I, my understanding is I learned more about the culinary and ag part of coffee agriculture side is there's robusta and Arabica beans. Right. And if the altitude is right and you get those beans, you can get actually a darker, heavier roast, which is something I like. It's it's almost it's not unlike um, what like the Death Wish guys and some of the other ones that are selling. Mm -hmm. I think it's just robusta beans. But um Mm -hmm. Good. The hardest part from the, 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 the little I know about roasting and whatnot, the hardest part about those beans is making them not taste bad. Because yeah. the Arabicas are a much better, they're, they're the favorite as far as tasty. Flavor. So, yeah. Yes. But, uh, so, you know, my, my roaster did an amazing job of, he's like, this is not going to be, the, he's a coffee snob. So, yeah, I like him already. Basically, he doesn't use these beans, but he's like, I'm going to do my best. You know, this <laughs> is not my best work here, but it's got a lot of caffeine. So, right. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, I think it's, it's delicious, but especially for the caffeine content. And I was amazed at the caffeine content because I, I drink a lot of coffee. And me and one of my employees sat down and had a couple cups and I was like, whoa, yeah, he wasn't messing around. So, yeah. Not like the best I've ever had, but for yeah. robusta beans, it's really good. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and that's yeah. that's kind of where we're at. I mean, yeah, because when people go in for a cup of coffee, like I like something. If I say a strong cup of coffee, you know, it immediately begs a question: Do you mean strong tasting and darker and heavier, or do you mean yeah. lots of caffeine? And if you can yeah. get both of those things, I'm on board. Yeah. You know, so. uh, that kind of stuff. Uh, in fact, on Instagram, I posted, it's from the Specialty Coffee Association, uh, the tasting wheel. Like, if you want to get into coffee and be a little bit more, you know, not just use it like the very blue-collar utility kind of way to get jacked before you go in the gym. If you want to enjoy it as well, the coffee taster's wheel that they use is, it's way more complex than you might think. It's a very pretty, colorful kind of graphic, and you can kind of follow it. You know, whether it's heavy or fruity or if it's fruity, is it like dried fruits or is it brighter? There's all this different like nuance. I mean, these guys really get into this yeah. whole sensory thing. So, um, okay. I have two uh, bits of science here, science articles. One is about coffee uh, and the other uh, is called the case against juice is stronger than ever. And I, that caught my eye. I'm like, what's this all about? So let's go to early break. When we come back, we'll um, do some more questions if we can find them online and then maybe some studies.
Hey listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh, you poor meathead, all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what. Uh, there is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, there's enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that. And uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single digit royalty on the book, but that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once per week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. All right, folks, we're back, and we've got some um, articles of different kinds, peer-reviewed and otherwise, to discuss some questions, studies from around the web. Um, this first one I said was about coffee. This is by uh, Hurley and colleagues in the Journal of Strength Conditioning Research. Strength and Muscle Sport News. Um, the version of it that I have here says ahead of print so i hope i'm not getting myself in trouble with this i think it's been um, published but the neat idea is about coffee and its analgesic effects we're actually doing a study at, in my own lab but with right now with some uh, doc students with the, the pt kids on um whether or not coffee can help with rehab right be not just because it might boost muscle contractility and help you be strong through the rehab but also the analgesia that goes with it, um, just because of the way coffee works. But this is entitled, The Effect of Caffeine Ingestion on Delayed Onset Muscle Soreness. Uh, it says, less is known about caffeine's potential role in perceptions of pain and soreness during exercise. The primary purpose of this study was to examine the effects of caffeine on muscle soreness, blood enzyme activity, and performance. Um, 
I'm going to focus on the pain aspects because I think we know that with resistance training, uh, you, you do get enhancement from coffee ingestion beforehand. And again, that sort of standard dose is in the three to six milligrams per kg of your body weight range. Uh, we tend to give around the four to five range. Bigger guys who try to take the six migs per kg, I think you're, it's like anything else with really large mammals. It it kind of falls apart. Like it becomes too much. Like I don't care how big you are, even if you're over 300 pounds, I'm not going to look at you with a grin and say, here, take four Viverin. You know, that's, <laughs> that's not okay. Anyway, um, they use a zero to 10 visual analog scale for pain. Basically, you just point, you know, on this ruler from frowny face to happy face kind of thing, typically. Caffeine resulted in significantly lower levels of muscle soreness on days two and three compared to placebo. Total repetitions in the final set of exercise also increased with caffeine ingestion compared to placebo. And I find that interesting too, right? Not only do you hurt less, but when you're, you're literally getting a little more volume when you get back uh, in, into the gym. This study demonstrated that caffeine ingestion immediately before an upper body resistance training uh, session uh, enhances performance with a further beneficial effect of attenuating delayed onset muscle soreness. Again, not abolishing it, but at least, you know, mm. attenuating it a little. And that's really good. I'm going to actually use that probably in, in a project that, you know, again, that we're working on with rehab. Uh, because I think a lot of people overlook that. So, and and again, I think that's why you see stuff like that caffeine back and body kind of thing, um, or you know the caffeine aspirin combo. Uh, on one level, caffeine is supposed to speed the effect of the aspirin, but it has it has mild analgesic effects of its own. And if it's going to help you get back into the gym, and you know doing more reps, I think that's pretty cool. So. Again, yay coffee. I need to try to find some things about coffee and how it messes with your sleep and, and that kind of thing because I just sound like a cheerleader, you know, <laughs> for it. But, you know, there's yeah, a lot and of there's a, a You probably saw it too. There's a brand new study, 2018, on the effects of coffee uh, components on muscle glycogen recovery. It's a review. I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but I'll, I'll send it over to you. But if people look up the title, 2018, it'll pop up on there oh i have not seen it no yeah international yeah. journal of sports nutrition exercise and metabolism oh right on yeah because one of the things we're looking at with in in, in the lab we're sending stuff over to dr booth he's a analytical chemist and we're looking at some of the other superstar candidates right of all those hundreds of compounds in coffee it's not just liquid caffeine so we're looking at some of this other stuff and how brew method might might affect it and who knows maybe down the road phil we can work together and be like maybe you know i can offer some input like what does the science say about these different brew techniques how do you get the most antioxidants or the most effect and then we can kind of play with it back and forth you know maybe mm -hmm. maybe phil's guy says no i don't know that tastes like shit we can't do it that way you know <laughs> um, but we'll see um here's one i i just mentioned the this caught my eye and then we'll see what you guys have floating around the case against juice is stronger than ever this is by Jamie Ducharme uh, from Time Magazine. Now, I thought, you know what I thought. <laughs> I thought this was about anabolics. Um, <laughs> it's not. It's about actual juice. And as a nutritionist, it, I, I should have thought about that. But uh, it says there's a juice shop on practically every city block in a paper published uh, in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology Experts are starting to scrutinize several nutrition-hyped foods, including juice, 
And, of course, they're pushing that whole foods are superior to juices uh, for a couple of reasons. And I think we know these things. But one of them, of course, is that juice doesn't have fiber like when you eat a piece of whole fruit, right? If you eat a banana, if you eat an apple, the fiber slows down some of the sugars. And when you consume juices, there's typically zero to one gram of fiber in that stuff. Now, I'm not talking about smoothies, but just, you know, juice, fruit juice. Uh, and then you end up getting a whopping dose. I mean, you potentially, you could chug down 100 grams of fructose, you know, or different sugars. Uh, and your body actually struggles to deal with that a little bit. Um, now, they go on to say, by, by missing fiber, uh, juice won't keep you full. Um, drinking nutrients is less satisfying than eating them. Well, of course, we use and abuse that, right, for weight gain in our field. So if you can drink calories and you're not quite as full, you know, like hard gainers should be chugging, I would yeah. think, fruit juices or s preferably smoothies or, you know, whatever, protein, put some protein in there. But um, the whole idea, liquid calories is a time-honored trick, right, for being a little bit less filling so you can be hungry again sooner. Uh, let's see. Without fiber in the mix, juice is essentially just the natural sugars and water found in its ingredients, says Scott Kahan, K-A-H-A-N, director of the National Center for Weight and Wellness in Washington, D.C. Uh, Though natural sugar may seem hard, harmless, your body does little to distinguish between the sugars in an apple versus those in a piece of candy, Kahan says. Um, and again, they go on to talk about the different aspects of juice uh, they say juice cleanses probably won't help you lose weight um, i'm all on board with that this whole toxin cleanse thing is you know ever present and just doesn't go away the only cleanse i like is phil's meat cleanse <laughs> to literally extrude out your backside everything with pounds of meat oh that's terrible um i have never in my career seen a reputable scientific study showing that juicing and cleansing has any effect on weight loss or other positive outcomes kahan says and then they go on to say juice may even help you gain weight and again we in our field we tend to do that on purpose right drink some if you can get some nutrients and it's not just pepsi you know and then finally finally they say smoothies may be better for you than juices of course because they tend to use whole fruits and vegetables in there as well so um, I've actually heard about this even in pediatric nutrition, right? Like it's kind of debatable. Do you withhold a certain amount of juice from kids? Because they might not get many fruits and vegetables. Um, but at the same time, is juice the best vehicle, you know, to get that into kids? Uh, maybe not. I mean, even real juice. I'm not talking about the drinks and beverages, right? If you get a bottle of juice and it says, quote, unquote, beverage or drink, that could be like five or ten percent juice, but even the real deal juice is is uh, under scrutiny apparently. And this is, oh my God, this is what uh, four days old. This article, so spanking new stuff back in the news, you know, against uh, fruit juices. I guess um, I'm not going to turn away from my fruit juices entirely, but I get their point. Mike, do you? What do you do with clients like in weight management and whatnot? Do you? Tell them to be careful drinking calories and even even whole fruit juices. Yeah, in general, I mean, if we're looking at their food log and they're trying to lose weight and better body composition and they're drinking a ton of calories, regardless of where they're from, um, obviously, like you said, that's going to be an, an issue, right? Because the volume is so condensed. Um, I have used just like getting a blender and throwing a bunch of uh, vegetables in there. So like my favorite right now is 
a little bit of pineapple, cilantro, lots of celery, and a little bit of lemon and lime, maybe a couple carrots. You know, you get a little bit more of the fiber in there. Granted, it's getting kind of mashed up a little bit. Um, I find that that works well. It's a little bit higher satiety. It's an easy way to get a lot of micronutrition in because, you know, sometimes even getting people to eat one vegetable with every meal can take a while to do that. So that's generally what I do. I I agree with what they said in the article, but I also kind of, it annoys me that these are the things that the media tends to put out because you'll get other people who are not clients that send you links and they're like, oh, so now juice is bad, so I can't drink any juice either. I'm just going to go back to my Pepsi. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's, you know, more of their yeah. all or nothing thinking, but it's, you know, what are you replacing it with? If you yeah, switch to juice instead of the same calories from Pepsi, yeah, probably better. You know, if you think that juice is the healthiest thing on the planet and you're going to drink three of them a, a day from God knows where the juice is actually created, eh, probably not the best, you know, right. but it's, and even then I've seen on a continuous glucose monitor, uh, one person who is a borderline uh, diabetic, every day at 10, we see these huge, just monster spikes in his data. And I'm like, what was he doing then? And she's like, oh, he was having a fruit juice every day at 10 a.m. I'm like, oh, well, in that case, at least for that individual, well, it's probably not going to be so good. So, but, you know, like all things, it kind of depends on what would you be doing in place of it. No, yeah, I get it. And you're right. It's always this black and white, or they want to attach yeah. a subjective, like a value judgment, you know, like, yep. is it good for you? Well, I don't have a piece of equipment in my lab that measures good. You know, (laughs) and they need to understand that that's why science is reductionist. You know, like, yes, will you get more certain vitamins and minerals? Oh, yeah, you will. Like if you have high blood pressure and you need to get some potassium in you, you know, having a nice 16 ounce glass of orange juice with your breakfast is that's perfectly fine. But yeah, is a is a physique athlete going to be drinking fruit juices in the 20 weeks before a show? Probably not, you know, Uh, or at least not much unless they're really depleted after a workout, you know. Yeah. So, all right. Um, so I'll I'll pass the baton to one of you guys. I only have one more article here. Um, Phil, what what do you have going on? Man, I got too much going on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, lots of events and meets and things like that. I mean, the usual the usual for me. So the Arnold's coming up. So I'll be going out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's in a bit over a month. So I'm going out there to nice. force Windler out of his house again. And I also have a couple athletes competing, so, oh, so that's, yeah, that's I mean, there's cool. that, and then kicks off from there. Just crazy summer. I make so. actually, I don't think I've been down there. Uh, oh my god, five years probably. Uh, and you know, it's two hours from me. A lot of people drive a long yeah. way to go there. I mean, that's like you said, that kicks off the entire sort of um, fitness season in a lot of ways. Yep. Yeah. Hmm. Come on out. We're bringing a whole group down. I think there's like 14 of us driving down. So. Oh, nice. Yeah. It's fun to go around and talk to the guys at the different booths and, you know, and yeah. like I said, it's fun, to add, you know, you share open-ended questions and then just let them hang themselves a little. Yeah. You're kind of <laughs> snickering. Oh, really? No, I'm not saying like I'm just a curmudgeon. It's, you know, you do try to keep an open mind. The problem is most consumers, they're so open-minded when it comes to those supplements that, you know, their brain falls out. So, mm-hmm. um, uh, Mike, do you have anything as far as science news? Uh, let's see for uh, studies. So we had a question from Facebook about should he get 
uh, other testing, uh, vitamin D, and he was asking about, I think, DHEA. Um, yeah, those are probably good. I mean, I think depending on the climate you live in, getting a vitamin D test is definitely a good thing. All right, so you're going to look at a 25-hydroxy level. Unless you've got kidney issues or something other really wonky going on, they're probably not going to measure the 125-hydroxy, right. which is more of a D3. But, um, yeah, and if you're going to get DHEA, um, probably getting you know the rest to you know what's going on with just the hormone panel in general is going to be a good idea. Um, if those are kind of wonky, you can get a little bit more specific into the weeds at that point but you know standard uh, testosterone free testosterone at the minimum though is just the start but you know talk to your physician and just ask for a, a male hormone panel and, and they'll know what you're talking about sounds good yeah the 25 hydroxy d if, if people get confused it's that's not what you're swallowing but just because it right. has as your liver and your kidneys work to convert right precursors into effective vitamin D, the, the, the 25 hydroxy D, your uh, liver and your kidneys put alcohol groups right in the one and 25 position. But the point being is, yeah, it has a longer half life. So that's what they like to check. I mean, that's. Yeah. Unless you've got, expert, like I said, kidney issues and they're going to be looking at D3. Um, most people I've heard from feedback from physicians now, if they're low, they're going to give them D3 as a supplement. Uh, for a while, several years ago, the D2 was popular as a supplement from a physician because it needed a prescription for it. But the half-life on that is just really, really low. So it's, unless you're trying to work around a specific issue, not not super useful. Um, yeah, and there's just one other one here. You had a question about, uh, looks like recovery using uh, steam rooms post-lifting. Can't seem to find it right now, but um, eh. I haven't looked at it too much. There's some really interesting stuff on sauna. Uh, most of the information on saunas is Finnish saunas, which tend to be dry, not very humid, but very hot. There's some interesting data now on FIR so far, infrared saunas, which I did one of those a couple of weeks ago. And oh. it's, it's weird because it it's um, basically it's more penetrating. So you kind of bypass a little bit of the sensors on the skin. So if you go up high in frequency, so my master's was in uh, millimeter wave exposure in a primate head, which basically means that super high microwave transmissions, you get just the outside of the skin. As you change the spectrum and change the source, you can get deeper heating, which is why your microwave heats food. Um, so using the far infrared spectrum, they can target a little bit deeper uh, tissues with heat. And you sit in there and it feels weird because you're not sweating that much. You don't feel that hot. And then you start sweating more and more. And I felt like I was getting, like, baked on the inside like a turkey. <laughs> Is that dangerous, Mike? That sounds uh, sketchy. It was a weird <laughs> It was weird. <laughs> so, yeah, that made me kind of question it a little bit. But there's some data that because you can get more muscle heating that may be beneficial. Um, I don't know. I've played around with right now. I just go in the, if I'm at the gym, which isn't all the time, usually in my garage, but if I'm at the gym, I'll go in the steam room for about seven minutes and just work on some breathing stuff. Yeah, seems to be okay. Mm -hmm. So I have to check a little bit more into it. But I think just getting your breathing back down, just I know you've talked about Lonnie, just writing stuff in your notebook, taking a few minutes to cool your jets, just kind of relax, kind of get back to normal. I think that's probably going to be a benefit. Yeah, change the music. You know, I sit in my car, yeah. I change the music from 
metal to you know something relaxing, you know, and stuff yeah. like that. Unlike you, Mike, I don't think I can listen to metal to relax. <laughs> yeah, I find that relaxing too. So <laughs> now, now is this the kind of thing? This the the infrared stuff because of the deep tissue heating and all that. Could people do it wrong and hurt themselves, or, or do you have to go? Is, is this not going to become a portable device that an average person can buy? You know what I mean? Like, are there risks and all that kind of stuff? Yeah. Uh, from what I've seen, because of the spectrums they use, you can't really get that super deep, and I don't think any of the systems on the market are that powerful to override any of that that I've seen. Okay. Um, you can get at-home units that are you know, not horribly expensive. Usually the things people talk about then, which I probably would agree is, you know, how are they made? You know, if you're taking a material that's been pressed wood and now you're heating it, you may get some funky chemicals that are off-gassed from that. And then you get into the EMI from all the electricity used to create it. Yeah, I don't, I'm still kind of on the fence on that. I try to limit it, but I don't know if it's as big of an issue as what people make it out to be. I don't think we really know yet. Um, but those tend to be more of the, the main issues with that. So you can't cook yourself, though? Not that I've ever seen. I keep waiting for <laughs> something to show up in the, the literature or media happening on that. I haven't seen anything yet, but yeah, I'm sure it'll happen to somebody. Oh, yeah, it'll happen. <laughs> somebody will cook oh, yeah. It's like, that, it's like those new cryogenic places, and you found like one of the people that works there got frozen. <laughs> oh, my God. But, you can't play with liquid nitrogen. At, at some point, some yeah. bad shit's going to happen. Yeah, that's yep. just it's going to. <laughs> it's like the opposite of playing with fire, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I, yeah. One of my previous internships in medical device, we got to play with liquid nitrogen, which is really fun. At the end of the day, after my training, the guy's like, I said, hey, we got this you know, vat left of it. What do we do? It's the end of the day. He turns and looks around. No one's around. He just throws it in the air and it all disappears before it hits the ground and goes that'll work wow that's cool pretty sure that's not yeah. compliant he's like oh you didn't see that <laughs> <laughs> we we were playing with that in grad school too we were we had extra and you know because we were doing with biopsies you know yeah we, we need to you know like uh was isopentane cool and then you cryo freeze yep. and you know liquid nitrogen like instant freeze because you want to freeze the metabolism instantly it was sort of both before a lot of imaging was what it is now yeah, and you, we had extra, and then you, know, you did the typical thing. You you know, carefully with tongs, dip something in there and just shatter yeah. it. You know, stuff like yeah. that. That's oh, yeah. potent stuff. Yeah, it's it's fun to play with. It's uh, just so so weird to see a gas that's cooled like that. It's just yeah. But if you do it wrong, you can freeze appendages <laughs> and all sorts of stuff. <laughs> you know, done well, the infrared stuff. I would think. You know, with all the people popping different, like, uh, NO products and trying to get vasodilation and stuff, I mean, I would think the heat, if you can get deep heat, you know, without cooking yourself kind of thing, that would be more effective, frankly. It'd be localized. You'd open up a lot of capillary beds, and, you know, that's – you would think that would be helpful along those lines. But Yeah, you would think so, and that's – you know, I – the more I read about just recovery in terms of like physiology and yeah, nutrition is going to matter. But outside of that, I'm just more and more convinced just getting blood flow to stuff, you know, and I've, I've done this with myself and clients that you take a day off and just become one with your couch cushion and you feel wrecked and pretty sore the next day. You just get up and do some light movement, some walking, nothing super intense. You just generally don't feel as sore the next day. And I think that's just any more blood moving around and, I don't know if it's just helping with the soft tissue stuff since they're so avascular. 
I think a lot of modalities with, you know, heat and maybe you know, far infrared and yep. other things are just at a base level increasing blood flow, which I think is good. You know, even looking at like the Normatec devices and things of that nature, compacts, but or compacts. But I always want to see it. Okay, just just compare that to just going for a walk. Eh, is it better than that? And if you're at a point where you're a team and you're traveling, you have to get on a flight for eight hours and you can't do much, then yeah, I think some of the fancier recovery modalities can be useful there because you're limited. But start with movement first and see how far that gets you. Yeah, that's reminiscent. I remember Priscilla Clarkson. I think back in yeah. the '80s, right? They were doing look at enzyme activity, like they did in the coffee study. I was just mentioning basically damage markers and how if you just lay there on the couch, like you said, become one with the cushion. Uh, your a lot of these damage markers don't really go up, and you might think that's good, but then they, it's not. It, they're not getting that out with the old, in with the new. You know, the whole yeah. recovery process is actually hastened. If you move around, because she was immobilizing, she'd work out muscles till they were very sore and then immobilize them. And they were looking at the enzyme release, like the time course was very different versus people who are just more mobile. And, and again, I've always taken that as it's, it's not like there's less damage when you're very sedentary and not moving. It's that you're not flushing out the, those tissues, you know, because there's no flow. And on top of that, NASA has been looking at a lot of stuff about bone density you know astronauts mike you probably know more about this than i do but yeah. you know because of microgravity there's the the blood flow really kind of leaves the hips you don't have gravity going on to kind of tug everything down so your their hips and their femurs and stuff start to lose bone density their their skulls actually get slightly more dense and they're really kind of linking that to oh that's a blood flow thing so i agree with that a lot of stuff i'm seeing suggests a blood flow and just some of the even wimpier daily movements to help encourage, like you said, some of the sloshing of fluids in the body, it's maybe a bigger deal than we think. So Yeah, and then lately what I've been trying to look into more, especially after doing the five-day of dissection work again, is how everything is under uh, fluid pressure all the time, right? Especially when you're standing. So you've got fascia, connective tissue that's surrounding each individual muscle, surrounding muscle groups. You got venous return with uh, muscle action, and how much of that I wonder is just hydrostatic, maybe even pressure on the bones. Obviously, we've got axial oh, loading. Yeah. But when you look at the fascia, you'll see all these cross striations, right? Which is tissue that's forming to restrict and to make sure that the pressure that's radially exerted from it is able to be handled. Which I don't think is something we tend to think about a lot of times. Yeah, it's an interesting point. And I know you do a lot of soft tissue work. Like you look at fresh tissue and cadaver work yeah. and stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. So, cool. yeah. Interesting. The more you learn, the more you're like, ah, I don't know if I know anything. <laughs> I know. Right. Definitely. Uh, I have one more uh, before we wind down. Um, this is from Mercola.com. Do redheads need less vitamin D? So there's a couple of interesting facts in here. If we have any uh, redhead, you know, the ginger lifters, if you will, uh, only 1% to 2% of the global population has red hair. Um, it's caused by a mutation of the melanocortin-1 receptor. Uh, if you're interested, a gene located on chromosome 16. Anyway, um, because of their naturally fair skin, right, lighter complexion, redheads are able to produce more vitamin D, according to this article, than uh, most people. And oftentimes you hear about the limitations of being very fair-skinned, right, particularly red-headed. Um, like when I teach pathophys to the PT students, right, we're talking about, you know, um, 
genetic tendency toward melanoma, right? That's that's the downside. And my family has this, right? My sister's got bright red hair. My other one's a strawberry blonde. My goatee's got a you know hint of the ginger and and that kind of thing. So basically, it says variations in the MC1R gene are responsible for a range of reddish hair colors, from strawberry blonde to brown with red hues. Um, I think this is obvious, but red hair seems to be more common among people of Northern European and Western European descent. Um, due to their naturally fair skin, redheads are able to produce vitamin D more effectively than most people, again, according to the article. Um, even though vitamin D can be obtained you know, through sensible exposure to the sun from anybody, they're just suggesting that if you're very fair, because you know, the very vulnerability that you have to sunlight uh, makes you better at converting vitamin D, according to this. It says, quote, as our distant ancestors migrated to settle the cool gray climes of northern Europe, redheads had a s signal advantage over their darker peers. And then later it goes on. Again, this is quoting different, I think, lay and scientific media. But, uh, quote, redheads, it would seem, boast a genetic secret weapon, which enables them to fight off certain debilitating and potentially deadly illnesses more efficiently than blondes and brunettes. So sometimes when we hear about fair skin, we think maybe blonde and, and redhead together. I, I'm, I tend to maybe, but um, it is interesting that you I might actually need less vitamin D. And I think where this is pointing, and the, one of the reasons I bring it up is we are just discussing in a, an advanced nutrition course that a lot of nutrition recommendations are moving toward individual, like risk factors and individual needs. Um, so yeah, this time of year, I typically tell students you know, it's not just blanket needs, like all saturated fat is bad, don't touch that stuff, or sodium gives you high blood pressure, don't touch that stuff. And that's not always true. You may not, you know, or like some people can respond to folate better, right? Their homocysteine levels may decline better than others just because they're genetically programmed to respond. Uh, so individual risk factors is very neat. And I, I would love to see future research that literally – if you're redhead this time of year, you know, I'm always saying don't, if you're not supplementing this time of year, you're, you're probably low D. But if you're a redheaded person and you, you're out getting even a few minutes, several minutes of exposure, your face and arms, uh, I may be wrong. Maybe you're not as low as everybody else. So it's just an interesting advantage, you know, I think, and I think we need to be comfortable enough to talk about some of these, this, you know, nutrigenetics and epigenetic kind of things. Um, and not always make it some kind of um, discrimination or bias kind of thing. It's it's interesting to look at pros and cons. I mean, I was at a conference years ago in Thailand, and they were talking about people of Asian descent, up to ninety percent lactose intolerant, right? So a lot of concern about oh, we got how do we get them calcium? But the the presentation I saw was that people of Asian uh, lineage may need less calcium. So maybe we shouldn't just assume that we need to force the same amount of calcium on them as everybody else. So, again, individual um, risk factors and, and nutrient recommendations, uh, I think we're going to see that in coming years. I don't know. Mike, do you have thoughts on that? Yeah, my wife is a redhead, so I, I've often wondered if, so if you look at like a evolutionary or ancestral viewpoint, hmm, it, how would you survive if you were not getting that much vitamin D before there were supplements? Obviously, they yeah. did fine, you know? Yeah. Makes me wonder, like you were talking about in the article, is it uh, faster conversion? Do they need less sun exposure? Maybe, for whatever reason, they just need less vitamin D. 
So maybe in the future we'll have a little excerpt on your vitamin D that says, well, if you're redhead, you only need XYZ amount. Right. Who knows? But Interesting. I think as we, we learn more and more, there's more. It's amazing to me how similar people are, but yet we're learning what areas they are very different in, too. Right. I, I once did a review. This was, oh, half a dozen years ago, but I had some students asking me about tanning beds, you know, and vitamin D this time of year. And I'm like, yeah, your body will make thousands of units. Um, and then there's at least some indication, right, in the literature that if you're very dark skinned, though, right, like you said, the conversion rate's not going to be as good. The advantage to that would be you're going to get burned less. You're going to tan well. That's okay, cool. But on the on the downside, maybe your your vitamin D levels are are even lower, right? And then I've even seen some discussion about because it, it becomes this like biopsychosocial argument, right? Like for example, people of African American uh, lineage, uh, if they're lower vitamin D, uh, do they have poorer cancer outcomes because of some social like psychosocial socioeconomic issue? They're they're not being given the best treatment, you know, that somebody else or is it is there a physiological side to that to consider as well, right? So it just becomes a sort of multifactorial thing about yeah maybe people are a, a little bit different in different ways and it's pros and cons and you know and I I just thought this was interesting because so often I've heard all oh, family history of melanoma Lani you know so I go get nipped every six months you know like that 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 freckle looks weird or whatever and. Maybe there's an upside to some of this, and like I said, I'm not nearly as as redheaded as my sisters, but um, yeah. Yeah, Dr. John Cannell has some interesting stuff too on vitamin D. He's definitely very pro vitamin D on that side, um, but he was looking at uh, sun worshippers and people who get uh, skin cancer and vitamin D levels, and his analysis was that the rate of cancer, you know, does kind of go up a little bit. But the cancers they get are very slow moving and not the ones that typically are more malignant and fast moving and more deadly. Hmm. So if you were only looking at the rate of cancer, the amount, you'd be like, holy crap, that looks horrible. But then you look into, you know, the type and you're like, well, you know, some of them may be fine for years on end. So they're not, you know, as deadly as other forms. Yeah, right. I, I'm talking specifically about malignant melanoma, right? That's very right. aggressive, very scary. But you're right. Most skin cancers are that basal cell carcinoma. And, mm, you know, I'm, no cancer is good, but that's the kind of stuff you can just get removed and move on kind of thing. Yeah. Um, all right. I'm going to wrap up with some uh, thank yous today. We're just about out of time. The following people help support the show, and thank you, uh, Honey Fund, uh, Thomas, Vicky, Colin, and Alan. Thank you for supporting Iron Radio. You help us keep the lights on. And again, th that was sort of something I started doing about mid last year is, you know, being very progressive and saying, hey, thanks, right? Because you are the people who keep this going week after week for all this time. And it's after t almost 10 years, it's not to toot our own horn, but it's sort of a resource. You know, I can point different people to the podcast. We've covered a lot of things related to health and lifting. So, okay. Uh, I guess that'll be it until next week. Thanks a lot, guys. Hey, listeners. Have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store, one for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry, and they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on 
your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store, uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun, heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good, uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, the stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org and um, let us know what you think on the forums and certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need. 